Hello, everybody. Um, we are here tonight talking about Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, yeah, so we're going to jump right into some announcements here real quick. Um, so everyone should hopefully know that MythMoot is next week. Literally a week from today, we'll be all in the pub and talking. Well, most of us will be. Some of us won't. Um, sorry. Uh, the uh also we've got baymoot coming up um and i forget the date off the top of my head but it's in august um so if you live out in california and are in the bay area you should go think about attending that and being there um that sounds like it'll be a lot of fun uh signum fall courses are uh already open for registration so if you haven't um gone out to see what we're offering this fall in, at Signum University. You can um, see right here what those are. You can also go to the future courses page, which the URL is right there below it. Um, and you can sign up, you don't have to wait. And uh, this summer we've got Signum Academy starting. So last year uh, we did a really great two week um, uh, class for kids uh, on The Hobbit and that went really well. So we're expanding that to four books this time. You can see those there. Um, just go to signumuniversity.org slash academy to see uh, more details around there. And we'll have some uh, more sign up information up there soon on that page. Um, and then coming up next week, next Wednesday evening, um, or sorry, Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. I believe, um, Eastern time, uh, we have Jennifer Ramundo um, giving her thesis presentation uh, through our thesis theater process. Um, so feel free to join there and you can go to the Signum University events page to see details about that. Also coming up on the next Mythgard movie club, we've got Edward Scissorhands, an oldie but a goodie. Um, and it weirds call, it's, it's kind of weird calling that an oldie, but it is an oldie. Um, so uh, that just means I'm old, I guess at this point. Uh, on August 2nd. That is a bit of a date change for anyone who's keeping track. If you're not, that's fine. We keep track for you. We updated the GoToWebinar uh, date, so it'll remind you when it comes up. And then we also had a scheduling change. So we've had a bit of a snafu with one of uh, our choices. We had, um, I think, originally chosen uh, to do Ready Player One, not realizing that it was coming out in like the spring when we were doing other things. Um, and so we had switched that to another sci-fi uh, indie film called Captive State, which looked intriguing, and that and that got pushed out to be released next year. So we are finally doing, and I swear I did not contrive this in any way, shape, or form. We are finally doing Predestination, which is based on a Robert Heinlein story. So um, I'm really excited about that. I think it's a really good movie. Did not get nearly as much uh, play as it deserves, and so we're going to be doing that in September. All right. So. Uh, that all said, let's introduce our panelists. And why don't we go uh, right around, uh, start with Kelly and, and introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Kelly. Um, I've been with Signum and Mythgard for five years, six years now, since 2012, um, and starting my thesis, working on my thesis um, this semester. Um, and I took a Star Wars class and Harry Potter class and a bunch of really great ones. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about Solo. Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Strand, um, and I am excited to be a current MythGuard student, um, as well as a past one as well. So um, 
I am taking the science fiction part one class um, right now, and I have also taken the Star Wars class and several others. Um, so it's really exciting, and I write for a blog called Hogwarts Professor, um, mostly about Harry Potter, but I am like sort of cover the Star Wars beat for Hogwarts Professor. And Dom. Oh, Dom, we can't hear you. All right, I muted my microphone too. Um, okay, I'm Dominic Nardi. I'm a political scientist by training. Um, I'm also taking science fiction part one class, and I've also taken uh, Amy Sturgis's uh, Star Wars class. Uh, big Star Wars fan. I do have a small blog that I run called Nardi Views, but um, you know, I've, I've already reviewed Solo there, but uh, excited for the discussion. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, Dave Manick. I'm also a Signum student. I just completed my thesis, so I'm super excited that that's done and, and in the books. I'll, I'll be presenting at, at Mythmoot. Um, my Star Wars claim to fame is uh, Curtis and I are very longtime friends, and we first met each other because uh, we had mutual friends that said, oh, you guys are both Star Wars nerds, so you, you, you need to know each other, and here we are. Yeah, there you go. And uh, yeah, I'm Curtis Wyant. Uh, I am no longer a MythGuard student. I finished my thesis last year, uh, or Signum student, and uh, but I still uh, hang around. Um, they let me do things from time to time, uh, work on the website a little bit, and uh, do some stuff with uh, the MythGuard Movie Club now. So that's really exciting. Um, I have a podcast with um, our fellow uh, Movie Club host who isn't here tonight, Cat Sass, uh, Cat and Kurt's TV Review, where we talk through science fiction and fantasy television shows um, and occasionally movies. And then, uh, yeah, I'm a digital marketer by trade, which is less interesting than all the other stuff. Um, and I also took the Star Wars class. And I mean, I feel like it's it's kind of weird introducing all of us here because like we've, we've had this panel before. So um, this is kind of our de facto Star Wars panel at this point. Um, but that's all good. Yeah, I <laughs> the Jedi Council. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I should have thought of that. Man, my uh, my lightsaber should be revoked. Um, so jumping into Solo, this is a little different than some of the other discussions I feel like we've had because um, I feel like generally <laughs> we've we've all kind of jumped in and had lots of great things to say about um, Star Wars, and maybe we will about this one too. Um, but certainly, if anyone has been following the sort of news about the release of Solo, you know that um, it, it's considered something of a flop, and uh, maybe there's some reasons behind that. So just kind of starting off, I wanted to get everyone's sort of just initial impressions. Um, what did you think about it? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Is there anything really... Uh, in particular that you did or didn't like about it. Um, and I mean, we can just kind of see where the conversation goes. I kind of listed here, um, and we can touch on these or other things, but I kind of listed here some of the common things that I saw uh, while going through various reviews, um, open to agreeing or disagreeing with some of these if you feel that way. But um, why don't we just go uh, in the same order and just maybe start with Kelly and just, did you like it, not like it? Maybe pick one thing that you, did or didn't like about it, and, and we can kind of go around the horn. Yeah, um, I, I enjoyed it, but I think that um, a large part of my enjoyment was because of my low expectations. Um, I think a lot of people can say the same thing. Um, I thought it was I thought it was fun. I thought there's a lot of action for me, but um, 
but that's what this movie was about. And I can't go into a Han Solo movie without expecting a lot of action. So a lot of things that I wouldn't like about it, just going into it with kind of preconceived notions kind of helps me enjoy it a little bit more. Um, there's a lot of, I, I thought that I didn't need every single thing explained. Like, this is why his name, this is his name. This is how I met Chewie, this is a, like every little bit, like it felt like it explained um, this is exactly what happened with him and Londo, you know, but that's, again, that's a little bit of like a personal thing with me. I like the, the mystery. I like the kind of intrigue you feel when you first meet someone, you don't quite know everything, um, which is totally what we experienced in the original trilogy. Um, so even though I enjoyed it, you know, I did think it was flawed, but um, certainly like having low expectations definitely helped me and I was able to kind of just enjoy it for what it was and I had fun. Well, I also enjoyed it. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say I had low expectations, but I, um, I was a little nervous because of some of the, um, directorial shakeup that had happened uh, a few months prior. So I was a kind of, although I was I was confident, I was like, okay, Ron Howard, he, he seems to know what he's doing, you know? Um, so uh, I, I went in kind of like a little bit nervous about it, but I ended up really enjoying it. Um, you know, is, is it a necessary story? You know, are the you know the the bubbles in the drink I'm drinking necessary? No, not at all. Um, are, and I enjoy them thoroughly. Um, so so you know, yeah, I loved it. I loved um a lot of aspects of it. I, Chewy was my favorite part of this movie. Um, mm. I just I'm a much. I thought I was already a really big Chewy fan, and and turns out I'm a much bigger fan than I thought. I really enjoyed the new actor playing Chewy, and um, I enjoyed mm. all the performances. Um. There were a couple times in the plot where I was like, uh, okay, you know, but, um, but those did not, uh, those did not interrupt my enjoyment of the film. So I, I'm a little bit baffled. I, I hope leaving this discussion, I hope that we can come up with some good ideas as to why this is considered a flop. Cause to me, um, it was a whole lot of fun. And I thought that was what it was meant to be. It's just a whole lot of fun. Um, and I it definitely achieved that for me as a viewer. Yeah, and sorry, real quick before Dom goes, I should clarify that when I said flop, I was um, primarily referring to it financially as a flop. Um, right. I think we can probably dig through all of the various story um, stuff, but uh, we I'm, I'm clarifying that too, because we got a number of people writing in <laughs> with comments about it wasn't a flop or, you know, mm -hmm. kind of providing some of their own thoughts there too. So I just want to clear from a financial perspective, people have been saying it's a flop, whether it's, you know, as a movie, we can sort of judge it on its own merits as a story. So, sorry, go ahead, Don. First of all, once you've had soda water, you don't go back to regular water. The bubbles are key. Okay, so with that said, um, I like this movie. I've only seen it once, and I've just been busy. Um, I want to go back to see it again before it leaves theaters. Um, I wouldn't say I love this movie. Um, I found myself really liking Han's character arc, which is probably the thing I thought I would like least about it, because there's the risk of taking a, 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 a legacy character played by Harrison Ford, one of the greatest actors of our time, and what are you going to do with him? I th you know, and I actually thought they did something interesting. What I, I think, as Kelly said, though, there was a bit of a checklist approach to the plotting, yeah. and I didn't... Um, 
I, this will probably come up later, but I'm not sure the Kessel run is um, is the thing I really needed to see. Um, overall, though, I felt like this is a movie for people like me who have read the, the old legacy books, uh, the expanded yeah. universe pre-Disney books about Han Solo's backstory, or you know, have like little Lego sets and other stuff, and are already invested in Han Solo and already invested in the franchise. You know, I think this is not as much a movie for people who or maybe newer Star Wars fans or aren't already invested in Han. And I think that's maybe that's one of the issues with the general audience that, you know, maybe why, you know, financially that it didn't, it didn't do as well. Yeah, I would, I would echo um, the sentiments that, that everybody's expressed. Um, like Kelly, I, I definitely went in with very low expectations. Um, I, did not like any of the trailers and I can tell you exactly what really turned me off. I did not like the actor playing Han, like everything about him in the trailer. I hated, I hated everything. And I really went into the movie expecting to hate his guts and the fact that I actually liked him. And I, I think primarily for the reasons that, that Dom suggested, I liked what they did uh, giving him a character arc uh, that, that I could buy into, I think went a long way to redeeming, uh, the actor's performance, which I didn't particularly care for, which I think to be fair to the actor, it's, you know, you're going up against, you know, Harrison Ford. So that's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to do. Um, uh, but I thought on the whole, what, uh, what I liked best about the movie was, uh, I thought the casting was fantastic. Um, I wish that there was a whole lot more Donald Glover in it than there was. Um, uh, I'm a huge Donald Glover that's fan, always- but, uh, you know, you can never have enough of, of, of him, can you? So, um, but on the whole, I thought uh, uh, what really uh, kept me involved was just the, I thought the performances turned out really well, much better than I expected, which probably helped me to buy in. And the Cthulhu monster, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the, the space to is what I've been calling it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, I, I think uh, I would just be echoing mostly what everyone else is saying here. Um, Mike Moore brought up the the Brian Daly novels, um, which I think Don, you were kind of alluding to some of those old ones. I actually looked for my, I, I got rid of so many Star Wars books like years ago, and then I slowly been rebuilding my collection. And I know I have those uh, older, um, you know, both the like the original like Adventures of Han Solo and, and the, the newer ones that were written in like what was it, the late nineties um somewhere but i couldn't find them in time to read them before well, that's what um, this is this is the one from the late 90s from bar it's a barnes nobles edition it's actually a very nice yeah. version of it. so if, if anybody's looking for a copy i recommend that one um and uh yeah because i, I remember reading those as a teenager and really like I, both the han solo and and the land of calrissian adventures um just really kind of being enjoying and being invested in the characters um but yeah again like I mean, I, I think I probably liked the Kessel Run bit a little more than you, Dom, but it also includes one of my least favorite um, sci-fi tropes of all time, which is the, like, I mean, they call what is it, it's not a black hole, right? It's like a, you know, gravity well or something like that. But, like, you, yeah, like, that to me is, like, visually, you just can never, you can't do that right. It's It's impossible to, like, capture visually what a black hole would actually be like. So, for me... Um, Kat knows, I know she's listening here, how many times I've complained about that as like a Doctor Who plot. Um, so like it would be uh, injudicious of me to not also complain about it here. Um, 
but you know the the space to post uh helps resolve that a little bit i feel like um yeah so um what kind of struck me though is like I, like a lot of people seem to and i kind of threw up the scores here we don't actually have like a defined way in the movie club here to sort of get like what's the like hot take but i mean these are like tepidly good scores right like like nobody seems to have hated the movie where there's problems it seems to be like maybe very you know some specific parts of it but like a lot of people seem to think that it was fun or at least like well made even if like maybe there was some character or plot problem or so th there doesn't seem to be any like broad scale animus it's just nobody seems to love it either <laughs> um for whatever that might mean um to get into a little bit more about that um i know so anyone who cares to can go out on twitter and see the rather lengthy discussion that dom and i had and, and a few others were participating um you know around some of the topics here but you know i just i wanted to get into some of that high level like like what should a star wars anthology prequel slash origin story slash whatever we want to call what this movie was and i'm not sure i maybe the problem was that it didn't know what it was either um because i'm not entirely sure what to call it um because i don't think it, it's certainly not a prequel in the sense that the other prequels that exist even including rogue one are prequels to the bigger story and i and this is kind of getting into where dom and i were talking about like what's epic versus what isn't epic and and sort of what fits the mythology um so as far as this is a prequel um, or an origin story or whatever like do we think it was effective do we do we think it did what it set out to do do we even know what it set out to do like um yeah just curious any anyone anyone can jump in if, if you have thoughts here i'll jump like, in and say um that i i uh haven't read much of the eu at all in fact i think the only eu novel i've ever read is kenobi um which shouldn't surprise those who know good me. One, <laughs> yeah i know um so i didn't have any like i didn't really know anything the, you know about what the eu held for for han or chewy or anything and um so that was that i i enjoyed kind of having the blank slate i i definitely agree with um a couple of you who said that this film seems to seems to be kind of conscientiously ticking some boxes um in terms of what what it needs to tell us about han in order to have a you know prequelish han story uh, han solo story um I have to say, none of those bothered me. You know, I, I, I've perhaps been accused of trying really hard to like Star Wars, but I don't feel like I have to try hard to, to like um, what's been putting forward. I, I will maybe it's a little bit of an exception with The Last Jedi, but that's a whole other discussion that I think we've already had. Um, but uh, although it's on YouTube, if you want to watch it. Well, I think some of the reaction to The Last Jedi is definitely relevant to some of the reaction to this movie as well. Sure. Um, so uh so in terms of like uh does it work as a prequel for han solo for me it really did i'm a fairly new star wars fan so i don't have all the nostalgia um from the past that's that kind of for better or for worse i'm sure it's a pleasure to have all that but um i don't i don't have all that nostalgia um so 
So I could kind of just enjoy seeing him get named solo by an Imperial agent. Um, I thought I didn't, I didn't find that terribly cheesy. I, I was like, yeah, okay. That it's kind of a really obvious tag name, you know? So, so where did it come from? You know, where, where, um, what is the story on that? So it didn't bother me. And I, I really loved the way that they um, framed how he met Chewie. I don't know how that differs from the EU um, or how much, how closely that overlaps with it. So feel free to enlighten me. But, um, but I really enjoyed, um, I thought Chewie trusted him maybe a little quickly, but I don't know. That's probably just who Chewie is also. Um, and that's part of why I love him. So, um, but I did, um, I did really enjoy, um, even though it was ticking boxes, I was like, okay, yeah, that's a cool box to tick. Go for it. So I'll yeah. throw this out there. Um, um, so in terms of origin, ver origin story versus prequel, I would say origin story is more about the character and prequel is more about the story. So an origin story tells you how some character became who they are partly because that character becomes interesting later on. Whereas a prequel, my understanding of a prequel is it tells you it's more about the world and the context and the story and how all of that, the world building gets to where it is later on. Um, so I think in terms of an origin story, and I would consider Solo to be an origin story and not a prequel, um, it does work. But what I like about it as I, as I said before, I liked Han's character arc. And uh, my fear was that the movie was going to Disneyfy Han, you know, that he's going to be this, this, he's going to be too much of a good guy at this point in his, his life. Because when we see him in, 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 at the beginning of A New Hope, we see Han, he's a pretty cynical jerk. And I, I talk a bit about this in my review. I won't go into too much depth here, but, you know, especially before the 1997 special edition change, which had Greedo shoot for, infamously had Greedo shoot first and then Han shoot in return. You know, before that, Han shot Greedo in cold blood. Um, you know, when I first saw A New Hope, I thought Han was going to break, betray Luke. You know, there, were, there weren't many clues that this guy was actually a smuggler with a heart of gold. So my understanding of Han's character is that he's, he's got to be in a pretty dark place at the beginning of A New Hope in order to become the guy who later saves Luke and later has that character arc. What I liked about Solo is that it it kind of sets Han up for that in an, in an interesting way. Um, Han in this movie, uh, the Alden Ehrenreich Han is he's much he's he he is he is somebody who thinks he's a tough smuggler. He thinks he's cynical, but he really isn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, Kara said this at one point, "You're the good guy," and he is. In this point, at this point in his life, he is, but he doesn't know that. I think by the end of the movie, though, he's starting to become more cynical. He's starting to realize that the world is bad and it's going to be betray him, and that he's got to, you know, except everybody except for Chewie either leaves him, abandons him, betrays him, or dies. And I think he starts developing that shell, you know, around him that he doesn't. He's not. He's he's more reluctant to let people in now. He. You know, he's not, he's not going to have another love of his life. Kira, Kira left him. Um, and he also infamously shoots Tobias Beckett first at the end of this movie, which, uh, and I, I like too that they didn't make a huge deal out of that, that they, they just let it happen. 
Um, so, you know, again, in terms of this being an origin story, you know, I think Han still has some more growth to become the character we see in at the beginning of a New Hope. But I can definitely see the line from the end of Solo to that movie, which which I appreciate. I, you know, I I I can't stand when prequels you know, show us a character we know and then you know, show them and show something that doesn't seem to match up with, what, with the, the previous incarnation. Sure. And I yeah. think just to add, sorry, just to add on to your comment about his um, situation at the beginning of A New Hope, like I think you start to see here that he probably continues making choices that lead to his financial non-success over the years like he slowly gets more and more indebted and you know maybe starting here you know because he gives away whatever but you know i mean we know that he has to dump cargo and has to you know take jobs that he can't pay for and you know runs into a lot of trouble so there's we can kind of fill in the holes there i guess yeah the question is how many of those will in the future be filled in for us as well potentially Sorry, Kelly, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, you're fine. I was going to add, like, um, I do like his journey, and I do like that it's not, like, I don't think that it was a total 180, like, but I do like that they showed, like, Dom was saying that everyone sort of ends up leaving him or betraying him besides Chewie. But what they show is Han and Chewie as the two stable people who are willing to not leave the people that they love or the people that they just met in the world, right? Like he, Beck is always telling him to like go and Han is like, I I'm not going, I'm staying. Like there's multiple times he's like, well, if you're in this, like you might die. And if you don't die, you're in it for life. And it's such crappy life. Um, and Han is like, no, I I'll take responsibility for this. I'll go with you and I'll do this thing. Um, which I think is really nice because one, it, it kind of makes it, clear why he feels so cynical because he his character is to, to stay and to be that loyal like him and Chewie both um but but two it shows that like when he meets you know Luke and Leia that's sort of it's it's already in his character not to leave them and that's why he sticks around because he does have this core foundation of of wanting to stick around when the like going gets tough and I really like that they kind of added that in this movie and, uh, sorry go ahead uh, about the illusion of death and uh, I want to pick up some, some, something uh, Emily said because I'm actually a bit torn about the Chewbacca the, the what are the cute meat between Han and Chewie not because I didn't like it but because I don't know. That's something to me that I kind of wonder if it's just best to leave that as like this mythical moment left to our imaginations. That's actually the approach that uh, A.C. Crispin took in uh, her her novels from the late 90s. Um, book one, Chewie's not there. Book two, Han and Chewie have already met. And we get some backstory about that, but we don't actually see the event. And um, I mean, I, I'm still I'm still torn about this. I don't partly because um, sometimes when you see something, sometimes when you start to define something like that, you it it conflicts with how you imagine things, and it 
creates a bit of a cognitive dissonance. And you know, I think one for me, one thing with the the Han Chewie meeting scene is that you know, it, 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 the film implies that Chewbacca has been eating people, which is kind of weird. And I don't know, I don't, I haven't quite grappled with that, what that means for the character and what you know, and it, I don't know, just it's it's something that I you know probably just have to get used to, but you know, it's still like as you as as a story defines these these background elements of a character, it's like it's it's you know less room for your own imagination to play. Yeah, well, there's that, and then like so for a movie that's so intent on answering questions, it leaves open the question of how the heck Han learns. Um, I forget the name of the Wookiee mm -hmm. language, but you know <laughs> how he learns any of that. Oh, um, don't you worry. There's a there's something on Wikipedia that actually explains that. Oh, I'm I'm sure. No, I'm sure there will be an explanation. Yeah. Han spent time with the Wookiee crew or so something. Like, that's so like intent on answering questions that you know that seems like a significant one especially since he grew up on the streets of Corellia and and actually to get into a couple of my um, particular issues so um, I agree the the meeting I like the meeting with Han and Chewie because it shows that they very quickly discover that they're they're trustworthy and you know able to like work together um, but I agree with you that there's like there there's something of the magic sort of maybe taken away in that meeting. Um, on the other hand, so I don't I don't remember where the EU is uh, that it that they actually describe the meeting. But isn't it like like Chewie's like a prisoner and like hurt, and then like Han's like an imperial officer who like saves him basically or something along yeah. those lines. The book describes it in the flashback scenes. It's also mentioned in one of the comics. Uh, yeah, Han's an imperial officer. Chewbacca's a slave. He sees another officer hurting Chewie, and there's like this debate about whether Han's gonna kill the officer, or, like stun him, and like they, you know, I think Han stuns him or Chewie stuns him. But anyways, Han basically frees Chewie from slavery. So, so basically, my my point here is I like that they they work together to escape here. So it's less like one saving the other. It, it becomes more of that partnership almost right mm -hmm. from the beginning um, than the EU story. Um, so there was the other, oh, the well, I mean, we see later Chewie change his mind about Porgs. So, you know, I guess, I, I don't know if, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the eating, the eating people thing or creatures, we don't know what else might've been thrown down there. Um, sentient beings of some sort. Um, I can at least buy that in the context of the empire, like pitting people and sentient creatures against mm -hmm. each other to a point where they have to fight for the dead. Like one of them's going to die. And so it might as well not be me from Chewie's perspective. Um, but like, I agree, like there's, there is a disturbingness to that. Um, but uh, yeah, he's 190 years old. Like what's to say that he hasn't tried human once or twice in those couple of centuries yeah that's not the only disturbing thing that's kind of glossed over i mean that's kind of humorous and it, but it does it does link up with you know um uh return of the jedi where han's like oh you're always thinking with your stomach you know 
to Chewie. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of a humorous weave in with that, you know, but um, at the same time, you, you have to just hope that it's all just a big misunderstanding, you know. Um, but, but you know, I mean, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting about this, not to take us in too different of, of a direction, but um, I think we have one of the first pretty overt references to human trafficking um, in this. Now, I mean, we had some of that in the Clone Wars TV show, um, which was, I was always like, oh, you know, that was always a really interesting theme to me. Um, and I was really interested to see that pulled into the, um, the movies um, in this film. And so, and, and you did have some pretty uncomfortable moments there with Kira and what she's had to get up to in order to, to um, you know, grab any kind of freedom um, or, or uh, you know, um, rise above her her station as basically a, a you know a city rat or a you know a kid who's just begging for for a an overlord um so so that was all I thought that was all really interesting and I was I was applauding that um that the Star Wars is bringing that in because you know if that's if this is a franchise that we resonate with because it it does um touch on you know things that that are really important to the human condition then this is a this is a big part of it um um this sh should be a, as big a part of the galaxy far far away as it is as it is here unfortunately uh, those those comments uh bring to mind two two points i want to make um one uh on the question of uh of chewy and the and the ethics of eating other sentient beings i think it's a, it's interesting to contrast that with lando and his trans species uh, love, both between him and the droid. I'm not quite sure how that happens, but then also, you know, between some of the other aliens, and uh, that was that was also kind of strange for me as well. Um, I don't know quite how that fits in, since it seemed to have kind of a different tone than pretty much mm -hmm. all the other Star Wars films in terms of what is and is not appropriate in those kind of with those kind of jokes and and, and situations. Um, uh, so that. The, the Chewie question brought that to mind. The other thing is um, uh, on the, the question of the illusion of depth. I think um, when when prequels or origin stories or stories like this work really well, um, it's it's they often do you know fill in gaps that that you know originally were there giving you the illusion of depth. But if they if those stories are successful, they will provide new new reasons, new new things that give either give. Uh, a new depth that didn't exist in the in the universe before or add new aspects to the story that give depth to the existing material and i'll give you one example of that um the uh the um personality or, or mind of the l3 droid being absorbed into the millennium falcon um really kind of changes the whole relationship that han and and lando have with the ship um, in a way that is a whole gives it, it you know gives a whole di different dimension to their you know their feelings about the ship than um, than they would have in the original films. Yeah, I suspect some of the illusion of I, at first I think that's a great way to think about illusion of depth. I mean, what you know, um, good illusion of depth should should uh, ask more questions than it answers. Um, I think one of the reasons why this film might get a mixed response from some people in terms of you know, whether it's just checking the boxes is because we've known Han's backstory or at least the rough outlines of it 
for a while. I mean, George Lucas was giving interviews in, the, I think, by like the late 70s even, talking about some of these these ideas like Han being a former Imperial officer, rescuing Chewie. Uh, so some, some of this we've known for a while. And then, of course, if you, if you read the old Legends books, there are all these parallels. Um, so... It's it probably we probably it's some of this probably just doesn't come across as wow that's that's amazing I'd never thought of that you know had we had no preconceptions about how Han met Chewie or Han's backstory um, so I'm certainly coming at this from a very different perspective than you know I think the general person who you know just never thought about the Kessel Run and it, you know never you know, whereas I'm like oh yeah kind of you know I had I had a preconception I had my preconceptions about that I. I, I had heard of Kessel from the books. I kind of knew is this planet where they did um, where they mined spice, and um, so that's something to consider too. That um, I suspect for the average person, just like naming Kessel, seeing this new planet, wow, that's cool. Like, what stories do you have there? Uh, yeah, so that's just it's kind of I think different. Um, I think this this movie plays very differently, given your you know, depending on where you're coming from. And also kind of like talking about the illusion of death, there's also like an illusion of um, like legend, I feel too, because the Kessel Run sounds like almost a legendary thing that no one can accomplish in the type of thing, in the type of way that Han did. And when you see it played out, it's, and you see Han as, you know, you get more, the more you see of a certain character, the less of a legend they become. And so what Star Wars is doing, and I think to, to the excitement to a lot of people, but also to the kind of disappointment of a lot of others is explaining everything to the point where nothing's really legendary anymore. And well, not nothing, but a lot of things aren't exactly have that same caliber of, of yeah, legend and myth and like the feel of a, of a world that has, that isn't there anymore. And you're kind of getting like the leftover, or I don't know, it just, for me, I don't know if I needed to see the Kessel Run um, because it's something, something really cool that's mentioned, and uh, and you kind of wonder like, what's that? Oh, I don't know. He's bragging about it. That's cool. Um, but I don't know. For me, actually, it's almost the opposite reaction with the Kessel Run. So when I saw New Hope, I I saw the Kessel Run as as just as this braggart bragging about some local like you know some local drag racer bragging about how he how he zoomed down main street and you know if you look at obi-wan kenobi's action when he brags when han brags about the kessel run obi-wan's just rolling his eyes he doesn't seem to care about the kessel run it's not like you know it's it's it, it doesn't it never came across to me as something that that would be legendary or would be epic in within this this galaxy so i was actually surprised to see that the kessel run was like you know, there, there's Something an Imperial Star Destroyer, there's this huge octopus monster. Yeah. You know, it's like it actually looked difficult. Um, you know, like I understand the point about how, you know, in defining it, perhaps you lose some of the, the mythic status of it. But at the same time, it's, it, was, it was much more of, um, it was much more of an ordeal, you know, much more of like a Homeric uh, epic than I thought it would be. I thought it was just going to be some smuggling run where, you know, Smugglers just have to go really fast, but it was just—it was much more than that. Yeah, 
and from the EU stuff that I read, I, like that was sort of my impression too, Dom, that like, like they were just doing sort of like a standard like smuggling operation. Well, I mean, I, they're kind of doing that here, but it's a lot bigger than than it like and and a lot more important as far as like you know freeing slaves and like you know ch being chased down by star destroyers. Whereas like it almost seemed like my recollection, at least from the EU stories, was that it was like yeah they were like trying to get some spice to sell and like they had to like just get away from whatever the local gangster or you know police force or whatever it was um and so he just kind of takes a different route like i don't need like it's not even like going through like this area of space that you can't see or navigate through it was just like i'm gonna fly as close to the maw that as i can and then like you know hope that like my ship doesn't get torn apart um and Obi-Wan Kenobi's not inability to be really impressed by that may, I mean, you know, you've just invited me to think like Obi-Wan Kenobi, so I'm going to do that for a second. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that guy hung out with Anakin Skywalker way too long to be impressed by somebody running the Kessel Run, you know, and it's like, Obi-Wan, he doesn't even like flying. He's like, I hate flying, you know, this is, you know, and I'm reading into it, obviously, from the prequels, but in the Clone Wars, but. But, you know, for him to be, like, impressed by that, you know, I mean, he's a Jedi Master. He's not good. Yeah. And he's a non- That's what I think. You know, he, I mean, he flies, but he's, he doesn't enjoy flying, so I don't know. Yeah, That's what and, uh, his reaction definitely, the context changes once you've seen the prequels in the Clone Wars. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, so Todd is also um, mentioning that he likes how they explain the measurement of the Kessel Run in Parsecs because it you know, of its uh, using an unusual or, you know, um, it, it, like uh, using a shortcut that like literally no one else would think to ever do. And, and so it kind of gives that thing. But like, I mean, I also feel like, like there's still a way maybe to resolve the two different views of like the Kessel Run as both more epic and like totally un, uh, you know, un um, interesting or, or, or un, uh, I can't think of the word off the top of my head. Okay. Unimpressive or whatever, like from a from someone who isn't a pilot and like maybe who's never gone to Kessel and doesn't know like all the ins and outs. It's like I did the Kessel run and so whatever, you know. It's like okay, you know, if I tell someone I wrote so many words in a day and they're not a writer, they're like, okay, is that good or bad? Like what? Like what does that mean? <laughs> you know, and and if you know you're bragging about like something and people are just like, yeah, but I'm not a pilot. I don't know if that's I don't know what that is like. I feel like there's there's a way to still be like okay yes this is really epic but only like people who are in the know would even be impressed by it and most people aren't because they're not pilots who have gone to Kessel. <laughs> I mean Obi Wan might might have the comeback of well I saved a world saving baby so you know I saved a couple of world saving babies so you know whatever. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> What do we all think about this this question about is Star Wars too consumed with the past? I mean, that's been a big question in the fandom recently. I'd be curious to hear what others have to say. I mean, it's taken off two whole new movies, you know, taking two whole new movies to start killing off the original cast. So like, yeah. <laughs> they're still not even done with it. <laughs> um, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's hard to not like the characters and feel like you want to get more from them. Um, 
I feel like movies like this are going to be the types of movies that help us get past that, though, because as much as I did enjoy Solo, I actually, I, I don't know if I really do want to see a sequel or not. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, okay, we tried it and it was fine, but like, let's maybe just, yeah, go some completely different direction next time. I think, I think this is probably a, an accusation that is unfairly targeting Star Wars because I think we have a general problem of being consumed with our past, especially in uh, blockbuster films. Like We've been remaking the same junk over and over again a million times or reinterpreting it or you know uh, rebooting things so much mm-hmm. that I think this is just a general problem at the moment. Uh, and so... I think it's only natural that that you know Star Wars is going to do a bit of that as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even like with Harry, the Harry Potter franchise, we're doing Fantastic Beasts, which is the generation before Harry. You know, it's 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 everywhere. Um, I think Star Wars has a particular. I mean, because Star Wars is such a huge franchise, and because what of the EU and everything that has happened for so long, you know, the past 40 years now, they, they, there's, it's such a wide universe that they can take any one thing and give the backstory to that one thing, you know, that one character in the cantina has this whole book, you know, or like that sort of thing. And I think that that's where this question is coming from. And that's why it's a little bit, it seems unfair, but to me, I, I kind of feel like it's just because there's, they just go off on so many different character paths you know it's anything that has been done in star wars up until 2015 has been the past i think i mean well all the books there's so many different avenues you can go down and they certainly go in the future but um in terms of movies and tv shows and that sort of thing um they do i mean and i I think to curse's point this actually i do think that maybe this will kind of enable us to let go of the characters a little bit more because you know, we see we see Han when he's young. Okay, cool. Like maybe we'll get a Kenobi movie too. I really hope so. Uh, and we can see him there. And now we can kind of let go of these characters so that when you know episodes, further episodes come out, we can kind of focus on the new characters and the new direction it's going. Um, so there might be a point to that. In the in the comments, um, Mike is kind of comparing it to some other characters um so he mentions like wolverine and like one of the most interesting things is that he didn't know his past um and so when it gets revealed it's kind of underwhelming and and whatever um and then uh referring to the doctor and doctor who um saying like yeah like if we were to learn the doctor's name that would be like horrendous (laughs) but i mean you know but even that like we they explore portions of the doctor's past from time to time Mm -hmm. Doctor Who. so you know yeah it's I think pretty prevalent and I think it's natural to want to, especially with characters that you love and you just want to get more like as much as solo was a flop, I still want a Kenobi story. <laughs> and like, I still want, I, I basically want them to take the book that Emily referred to earlier and make that a movie. Like, I think that would be great, but it can't be an epic star Wars blockbuster movie. It would have to be, in my opinion, basically the like, Whatever, I don't know if Disney has like an indie studio or something, but it would have to be a low budget like indie character study. And I think that's how it would be successful. Um, not just because then there's lower expectations from a box office standpoint, but also I think just that type of story 
is better suited to the character. And I think when you're getting into some of these anthologies, I, I, I think the risk, or not the risk, but the mistake maybe that they're making with some of these anthology stories is that they're trying to make them big blockbuster Star Wars stories, like all of the epic stories that have come in the past. And that worked for Rogue One. It worked really well. I thought they did a really good job with it. But I don't think it, it works for this type of backstory, character study kind of thing. And like, you could have cut the budget for this movie in half or a third and, or, you know, two thirds or whatever. And like, I think you could have done as good of an action film and like, it would have been successful because it would have made all its money back and more. And like, everyone would be happy at this point, even if like, the story overall was pretty much the same thing. And I think, I think that's where some of the expectation from a production and um, movie making standpoint needs to happen. Now, whether Disney would ever like go for a film that they know is only ever going to make $50 million and have a budget of $25 million, like that's probably not going to happen because it's Disney. But I personally, I think that's the type of story that would work a lot better with some of these anthology tales. I think it, it would make a great it would make a great TV show or you know on the on the lines of like Agents of Shield like I I don't see them doing something similar with the Star Wars universe that they've done with with Marvel and I'm curious why that it, is They are they're going to John Favreau is doing it. All right. Um, yeah, and actually that brings up a good point cuz I I saw the film twice. I saw it once by myself and then once with my kids. And and the second time I was watching it, and we'll we'll get into some of the allusions to other TV shows that, um, you know, we want to talk about later. As I was watching it, though, I thought that this would make, like, a really good, like, three or four part, like, mini arc in a TV season. Like, Mm -hmm. just kind of the way the scenes are cut and, 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 like, the different acts within the story almost are set up as episodes that you could see like okay stop here and then next time on star wars a solo story or whatever like um that it would actually work a lot better in that context in some ways um so yeah i totally agree and they are doing a live action tv show so maybe we'll see something along those lines in that but um yeah that remains we've seen there's like no other details out about that yet so yeah some of the things that annoyed me in this in this film I think would have played out and excited me in a different format, like a TV show, like all the, 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 you know, the checks that were made, like this is how this happened and that happened and this happened, you know, if it happened slower and like more of a setting and then, you know, episode three, he meets Chewie and I'm like, okay, cool. Like that's, you know, I think slowly and surely I would have liked to see those checked off. Um, I, I agree. Like a different format would, would have been really cool. I think Star Wars has a, a pro- it's going to take a while for it to shed this expectation that every single film that they release is, is epic, you know, is this mm-hmm. epic tale. Because this wasn't an epic tale. I mean, it was only epic because we know who the character becomes um, and the role that he plays in the epic story. Um, but no, I mean, there were some kind of brushes up with, the proto resistance or the proto uh, rebellion. I can't remember which one are we on. Are we on rebel? Or we are rebellion. On, on rebellion. Yes. Okay. Proto rebellion. <laughs> so um, it brushes up with that, but it it just isn't epic. And and if you know, in my mind, um, that's that's a that was one of the audience's problems with this that it just seems a little too mundane. And I have to say, 
I've watched I watched The Last Jedi just last week. Um, rewatched it for the first time in a, in a while, and uh, although it is it tells an epic story, it deals with some pretty mundane interpersonal conflict. And I think you know Star Wars, even the interpersonal conflict in the in the main saga, that stuff is epic. You know, not knowing who your parents are mistakenly falling in love with your sister accidentally almost, you know, um, just the different interpersonal, you know, um, the love story between Han and Leia is pretty epic in terms of the context that it's set in, you know, all that stuff is, um, is, is pretty, pretty interesting interpersonally, pretty, pretty big. And then in the last Jedi, we have this film that deals with this kind of nitty gritty workplace stuff. You know, it's like, okay, wow, like, I get that this can happen and that this does happen, and I identify with this, but in a Star Wars movie? You know, like, so, I, as much as I'd love to see the movie that you're talking about, Curtis, like, with Obi-Wan and the $25 million, you know, desert character study with Obi-Wan, and, like, does he, you know, I have, a, I have a good friend who I debate with all the time. He just thinks that on Tatooine, Obi-Wan just drank the whole time, just, just, just nothing but just get drunk in bar, you know, in, in saloons. And I'm always like, no, he didn't. He would never have done that. Qui-Gon wouldn't have let him. And also he would have felt too bad, you know, but uh, like exploring that whole context, it would be so just eat. I mean, it, it would have, it would be a horrible, you know, unless it was 30 years from now when we've had five other films set a precedent that that's, that's also a Star Wars movie. But I think right now Star Wars does have this epic, you know, expectation and this nostalgia really plays in. And I think a, a film like Solo that that could be part of why, as we're talking here, I'm thinking that could be part of why it just didn't get the kind of audiences that that really I think that it deserved. Yeah, I kind of think there's a, I, I, I so I do my controversial hot take for tonight for the night is that um, I think the anthology films are pushing more boundaries and experimenting more than the saga films. You know, when I, when when Disney purchased Star Wars in two, two, 20, uh, 2012 and announced this this these anthology films, I thought they were, they were going to be mostly nostalgia based, and that the, the saga films would be you know, pushing ahead with new characters and new ideas. But I feel like the saga films are actually stuck in the past. You know, The Force Awakens is a New Hope remake. The Last Jedi. Is kind of deconstructing the previous series, and you know they're overshadowed, shadowed by the the legacy characters, and it's it's like the whole Empire vs. Rebellion again. But with the anthology films, I actually think Star Wars is starting to play with different genres. Rogue One was more of a a spy film, almost no legacy characters. Everybody dies at the end, which I just thought was brilliant the first time I saw it. I, I like sad. I I I got a gut punch when I saw K two S O die. Um, I think one of the issues with Solo, though, is that it tiptoes towards this this lower stakes uh, story, this kind of character study, this 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 heist story, but it doesn't fully commit to it. And I think that's one of the things we're 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 reading in a lot of these reviews, where it is a fun film, but it's still, I think, like as Curtis said too, like it still wants to be a blockbuster film. It's not really committing to the small scale heist story. Um, you know, it still wants to connect to the rebellion, you know, with the proto rebellion scene. You know, it's still, 
you know, like I saw the Darth Maul cameo was fun, but it also maybe tied into the other the other Star Wars material a bit too much, uh, especially for audiences who haven't seen the Clone Wars. Um, and so I don't I don't know. I kind of wonder if there's a version of this film that could have played it really small um, and just just been more of a character study that would have maybe maybe really excited reviewers and really you know gotten better word of mouth. Do we think that some of the epicness is um, tied to the lack of uh, the force or any kind of like spiritual or mystical or whatever you want to call it aspect, um, which is obviously like a big part of, of Star Wars right from the beginning, um, but I'll note also was missing from Rogue One. So in large part. In large part from Rogue One. I mean, depends on how much you believe uh, some of the characters were actually force wielders or not. But anyway, so we're not going to get into that discussion about Rogue One, um, <laughs> which we totally could. And if you're at Meth Mood, maybe we will. Um, but uh, yeah, like, I can see the argument for, for why that might be. And, and Mike brings that up in some of the comments here. Um, but I... I also like thinking about Han's character as like a non-believer in the force. Like I also feel like to have had the force in this film would have felt maybe untrue to his experience that we know he has later, right? In A New Hope and all of that. So throw that out. Happy to Are hear. Are you saying it would be forced? Yes, <laughs> I am. That's very, very well done. <laughs> I just propose the working definition of epic, um, um, you know, great, strong, powerful characters achieving great deeds in a way that changes the status quo of the world or the society. Um, you know, so, and I think by that, Rogue One is an epic in that these characters achieve what seems to be an impossible mission to steal the Death Star plans, and that has consequences for the the, the fate of the galaxy. Um, we know what happens to the Death Star and a New Hope. Without their efforts, the rebellion would have, been, would have been crushed. I think for me, Solo, you know, not, you know so Kessel, the Kessel Run. Nobody, nobody except for Han seems to really care about the Kessel Run. Even even Beckett and and Lando don't really seem to care about it. They, they, they you know, when Han's bragging about it, even Chewie's like, Chewie says something, and Han's like, yeah, well, it's twelve parsecs if you round down. So, and Chewie, even Chewie doesn't seem to be impressed. Um, right. You know, it's like <laughs> and, and at the end of the movie, Han takes out this local crime boss for this, this Crimson Dawn boss, and we learn when we see Maul that this guy wasn't even at the top of Crim Crimson Dawn. Kira replaces him fairly quickly. Um, so what changes in the movie, what's what changes in Solo is Solo's character, his character arc, but Solo doesn't, to my understanding, affect the greater galaxy or the, or, or society or, you know, much around him. It's, it's about Han and Chewie. I don't necessarily agree, uh, disagree, but let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, the Kessel Run 
uh, in this film essentially finances the rebellion. So it's it doesn't appear to significant to the characters in the film, really. But for the audience, we know that you know the ultimate result of this film was to finance the entire rest of the major movies basically all of the all of the resistance ultimately was more or less uh made possible by this kessel run so in that sense the kessel run is legendary but the only people who really truly understand why that is would be us as the audience first of all star wars toys finance the star wars movies I'm done we, here. We figured out that Solo is actually a metaphor for how Lucas created an empire yes. of Star Wars. Um, or a rebellion against the previous empire of movies, maybe. The rebellion against established Hollywood. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I know. And, is, and I, can I just point out, because Dom and I yeah, had this discussion, yeah. this is why Dave and I are like best friends, because he thought of the exact same thing <laughs> that I was saying. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so my, I guess my, I'm not convinced that we're supposed to read the Enface Nest proto-rebellion in Solo as a direct precursor to the rebellion. It might be one of the many rebel cells that forms the rebel alliance later. Um, you know, my, the only character in her group, in her group that I recognize whose fate we know from later in the movies is the guy with the tubes. I think it's, I think his name is Two Tubes. And he actually ends up joining Saul Guerrero's gangs in Rogue One. So he's not even with the, the rebels, uh, later on in the story. We don't know about Enfys Nest. We don't know those other characters, where they end up, if they even join the rebels or, if they all die the next day. Um, I think my bigger concern, though, with that interpretation of the the the, uh, uh, the ending of the film is that I don't think Han is supposed to be in that place yet. I don't think he is supposed to be the guy who saves the rebellion yet, because that's what he does in A New Hope. And so I think having him, you know, having achieve, him achieve that level of greatness, or you know, or or being that much the good guy quote-unquote, um, you know, I think kind of pushed, it, I don't want to say contradicts his character arc in The New Hope, but I think it it maybe devalues it a bit because, you know, and if that's, if he's already saved the rebellion once before, it's like, oh, yeah, he's just doing something he did when he was, like, 20. Um, whereas, and, and also it just makes the galaxy seem that much smaller. It's like, is Han Solo the only smuggler out there who can save the rebellion like there got there got to be other people in this galaxy who, who matter and who have an effect on things oh no no i i would let me argue with that again um i don't think han saves the rebellion the actions that he that he takes that result in the rebellion being saved um he does not do in order to save the rebellion he does them to save his friends that's that's what's awesome about him is that you know when he, whether it's in a new hope or at the end of this film like he does what he does not because he's he's trying to be a grandiose good guy it's just cuz he's being a regular good guy he's looking out for the people that he cares about yeah i just think it, and there's there's a maybe there's a fine line between foreshadowing a later character development and being the exact same thing and i kind of feel like if 
what he does at the end of Solo has the effect of saving the rebellion by financing it, then it's like he does he does he 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 ends up saving the rebellion again in a, in a New Hope. And I just you know having you know, and then, but I think at the end of Solo, I think the character is supposed to be in a darker, more cynical place. I don't think I think he's not supposed to be purely heroic at the end of this movie. And he's not supposed to be the, the mythic legend at this point. This is his origin story. So that's that's why I kind of, I just, I don't, you know, I, I kind of, you know, push back up against that interpretation because it's like, you know, Han saving the rebellion is like, you know, it just, it just kind of becomes like a small, you know, like the small universe trope. Like No biggie, you know. done, done it twice. Yeah. 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 Like Hans, come on. Like, what a coincidence. Hans saves the rebellion twice. Dave, well, I think. goes back to the. Go ahead, Kelly. Oh, no. I, <laughs> um, I think it just goes back to what you were saying, Dan, because I do agree with you. But if, like, the way I viewed it wasn't that it was a, the start of the rebellion that he helped. It was just like a smaller, like, fraction. It was a, a little, like a, like a rebellion piece of it and I actually took away like I don't think he he's I think what we're supposed to take away from that is that he's a good guy by nature but he actually doesn't really care about being a good guy and I think when um they offer him to come and what like I, I forget what they offer uh, him but they kind of ask him to come along or ask him to participate in a higher way and he just he doesn't care and I think that that's the missing piece is that sure he kind of saved the rebellion Twice, and this is a smaller scale of what he will eventually do, but in the end, he he doesn't care. Um, but uh, of course, by the end of his life, he very much cares. Um, so I think that it's similar, but at the there's two different end results, and he's motivated in two different ways. Um, and so even if they're kind of the same thing, the differences I think were shown enough um, to for me at least. Yeah, I mean, Dave, I really like your interpretation of it in terms of, you know, he's he's not saving, he's not trying to do something for the cause. He's doing something just for these people that surround him right now. Um, and but at the same time, my my, you know, when I uh, said at the beginning that I had a couple times in the plot where I was like, oh, you know, I'm not sure. I think, Dom, what you're saying about just um, kind of over anticipating that good guy thing takes away from I think it, it has that especially for you know the audience who's not doing the kind of really nice analysis Dave that you're doing you know they're just kind of going they're they're you know um just taking it in I think I think you do have a little problem with with anticipating that good guy who saves the rebellion thing a little bit too much now now the question that I have is what happened in between um, you know, that's always my question in terms of if we have something unexplained, what happened in between to, to cause him to kind of fall back to this cynical nature? You know, is it is it something more with the relationship with Kira or, um, you know, again, what what happened? So I, I, I do have a feeling I was really left at the end of this film with the feeling that we were going to see this cast again or at least parts of this cast again. Um, minus uh, Woody Harrelson, obviously. Um and, and I can anybody and this is I'm totally winging this out there. Um, 
why did it, why did I read so many um, people who hated Woody Harrelson in this? Is there just like a, a, a general dislike of that actor or? Um, I thought he was one of the best parts. So I, I can't yeah. relate to that sentiment. Yeah, I agree. I thought I thought his performance was well, and you know, don't count him out. Darth Maul came back, so you never know. <laughs> we'll get to that. I want to jump in here because I don't want to drop what Dom is saying and let it go at that. Here's a couple of things. So one, I think I, I I don't know how you can watch Solo and not see this as a proto rebellion and this nest and and the Cloud Riders. Um, so there, there is Two Tubes who does end up in Saul Guerrero, but Saul Guerrero was part of the rebellion proper at one point. So like, you can't just say like, oh, we see him in Rogue One, and so we don't know if Two Tubes is ever part of the rebellion. Well, if he's if he's with Saul Guerrero, there's a good chance he was with the rebellion, and then later rebelled from the rebellion and went off with Saul. Um, also, we see Weasel, who was confirmed as the same, uh, you know, played by Warwick Davis, confirmed as the same character from um, uh, whichever prequel he pops up. And I, I think was uh, it, Phantom Menace. Was it Phantom Menace? Um, you know, we don't see him later, uh, at least not not as Weasel. And, uh, you know, so, okay, maybe he does die or whatever. And maybe we don't hear about Emphis Ness later, although who knows, maybe we'll hear about her and her group at some other point in the future. I don't actually think it matters if we ever hear of them again, because I think there's enough parallels going on here between, and, and enough of the right sort of trigger language, if you want to call it that, um, to, to identify that this is, this is the proto-rebellion, whether it's one cell or it's like the main cell that develops into like the bigger rebellion. I mean, we know that like, Yes, like uh, Bail Organa and Mon Mothma and like Leia are the ones who like gather the cells together and make the actual alliance. But you have Enthus Nest saying the word alliance. Like we can make an alliance. We can make a rebellion against the Empire. You can. This is the lifeblood that will fund the rebellion. And like you have enough of those that like even if even if her cell ultimately gets wiped out and goes nowhere, like from an epic story standpoint. This is the goal. This is the this is her goal and her option. Solo totally doesn't take it. You also have the parallels of Luke saying, "We could use a guy like you in a fight. You know, you're 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 good in a fight. You can you know you should totally help us." And Han refusing. Same exact thing that he does here with Endis. So I think there's enough of those types of parallels that it even if this is just like right now a local rebellion, six million credits worth of coaxium or whatever it is that they, you know, the value of what they steal, that goes a long way towards funding their efforts and and making it bigger and fulfilling that goal that Emphis Nest has. Now, okay, so may, like at what point does like individual story cross into epic? I mean, I, I feel like we could debate that for years and like never come up with like what's the exact point. But I think there's enough of those types of parallels that you can look at this as a an individual entry point and touch point into the epic larger story of Star Wars, which, okay, maybe doesn't itself ever rise quite to the epic, but certainly has those echoes of what will come later. And like, if you need the gaps to be filled in, or you need to know like the, you know, thoroughbred lineage pedigree of Enfys Ness and the Cloud Riders as part of the rebellion, then that's fine, I guess. I certainly took it as there was enough hints and parallels and trigger words there to definitely make it feel to me like 
like this is a touch point into a bigger story and a bigger entry into the rebellion as a whole. That's just yeah. I mean, I, I totally the the trigger words were uh, like they're they're they were not very subtle about that. And I guess I I interpreted that more along the way of uh, more along the lines of Emily, Emily's interpretation in that this was very very heavy anticipation anticipation of of that greater deed that we saw in A New Hope. I mean, I guess it's to me it kind of sounds like maybe the the disagreement is about the definite article the definite article versus an indefinite article is Enfys Nest's rebellion the rebellion quote unquote that we see and later not... or does it like is it part of many rebellions in the galaxy that maybe form later. I guess my my I kind of push back at the idea that at this moment in this film, Han quote unquote saved the rebellion and but for his actions in, in this film, nothing we saw in the about the rebellion later on would have happened. You know, like I'm I'm totally I like that's that's where I think maybe mm. anticipates Han's later character arc a bit too much. But you know, if this is just like one out of 50 rebel cells that are maybe exist in the galaxy at this time that later come together to form the rebel alliance and Han saved this one. Like, I think that kind of jives a bit more with my understanding of where Han is in the story at this point in time. But I, I don't think we have any, so even think of like the rebels show, which, are, so I don't want to get too much into other canons, but even thinking of that, like, like you've just got this like one cell that never like considers going out into like a bigger rebellion until the bigger rebellion comes and contacts them. Here with Empress Ness, you have the opposite. There, she's hoping and aspiring to a bigger rebellion, and I think that's for me the difference. If like that's fine. If if we want to just say it's a matter of like indefinite versus definite article, like that's fine. I've always called it the proto rebellion because it's not the rebellion. So like. If that to you means it's just a rebellion and a cell, like, yeah, like maybe we're like standing on opposite sides of a fence and like can reach over and touch each other and that's fine. But like, I don't, like to me, I I think it's it's definitely echoes of the bigger thing and, and it's the aspirational aspect there to, that to me makes it seem like it's a through point to the actual rebel alliance. I think we've probably beaten this horse to death, but I will I will throw in one thing, which is one thing I like about about Dom's position is I like the decentralized nature of the rebellion that he wants to see. And frankly, I would prefer to see that in Star Wars more than it I think it actually exists. Well, you haven't watched Rebels though either. So. I have not. That's true. I, I I think that's absolutely the case. I think I think we're getting more of that as we get some of the new canon stuff that that it is meant to be a more decentralized thing and then by the time we get to a no, new hope it it's more centralized than you know it is earlier but like that's sort of like the gelling of it point because even like in rogue one you get the sense that it's not completely gelled yet and that the rogue one actions uh of the team there are the is what actually gels everyone into like we this is the first major attack we had on the empire and we stole the plans and like we can actually do this thing that we were just sort of playing around with doing before that's my interpretation but again like maybe we shouldn't go too far down the road of other stories 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a big, you know, in, in my field, we say it's a big church, you know, when people can't quite get along about something, it's like, yeah, there's room for everybody. And I think, I think that's probably kind of true here because, you know, when I first started watching Rebels, uh, the TV show, my impression was like, wow, this is like the de really decentralized, you know, these people are just kind of off doing their own thing, making trouble, you know, and they, you know, eventually, it was the whole story arc was to see the rebellion kind of coming together. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I kind of see it both ways. I mean, I definitely will say, though, to, to turn a little bit of a corner, I'm so hoping that we get some more information and some more stories about Enfys Nest and her crew. I, I can't oh, yeah. imagine that that isn't on the on the um, the docket um, for Star Wars, but um, but I'll just add my voice uh, hoping for that. Yeah, I would be very surprised. Would love well, to see Dave, the actress again. She was, she was really cool. And Dave Filani has his new show anyway, so maybe... We'll get something. Else. I have heard about that one. I hadn't heard about the live action one. I guess I'm out of the loop. Um, do we think a sequel is going to happen for Solo? I think yeah. so. They set too much up as a possibility. I think with with Kira and just flashing Darth Maul, are you going to show one head and then he never comes back? Come on. I mean, it's the box office. It was I mean, you know, you can't you can't make a sequel in a film that doesn't make money. Yeah. I think they got deep pockets and they'll try to re rehabilitate it. It's Disney. They're not going to make movies just just for charity. Uh, I mean, I think we I think we will get a sequel in the form of maybe a novel or a comic. I don't I don't think this story is going to be dropped. I just don't think we're going to see a, a movie sequel. Yeah, it was probably a wait and see sort of thing. I can only imagine, but. I don't know. Again, I would love to see a sequel. That's why I'm kind of like, man, it's not fair. You know, like what? Get your butts out to the cinema. Go see this movie. It's good. There, I think there are ways to do the sequel where you're not just telling Han's story part two, right? You tell Lando's story, for example, or you could pick it up in any number of ways, I think, and continue that storyline without it being a, a Han Solo story. I want to see more of this. <laughs> Um, I, cause I, at what point did you all start thinking that they should, or that you did want a sequel? Because for me, the, it was just, this is the last bit with Darth Maul. And then it's like, you know, even, even me, like, I actually don't think that it was setting up for a sequel. Like I, I but I haven't read, I haven't done all the rebels and the Clone Wars and those. I was just like, that's so I, random that they threw him in there. And like, was they just doing that just to do that? Like, it kind of felt like that to me. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, I mean, was it the whole movie that you guys were kind of expecting? Like, I want more. I think I think they're going to do more. Or was it just that last, you know, two minutes with Darth Maul? Definitely the last bit for me um, got me thinking that this was going to lead someplace else. And also with the fact that the relationship with Kira just totally didn't resolve at all, even if she would have slapped his face and walked out the door, like that would have been more of a resolution for me than her just like being like, oh yeah, I'll meet you later. And then taking off after speaking to this this character who everyone has always mourned as, you know, a really great villain who who was wasted by, you know, in one film. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, and, and I did, I mean, I had, I have seen all the Rebels and Clone Wars stuff. So Darth, you know, I mean, I was like probably one of 15 or 20 people who applauded, mm -hmm. you know, when, when Darth Maul uh, appeared on the screen, when he took his hood off. Um, 
because you know i wasn't i wasn't like shot i wasn't like wait he's supposed to be dead you know but um but it was a, a very um great moment and that was the moment where i was like oh wow they got to keep going with this because this is maul's big chance to you know it's almost almost like the way luke appeared in the last jedi you know it just left you really wanting more mm-hmm. uh, i'm sorry in the in the force awakens uh just left you really wanting more of that character so actually i so I actually thought the way the Han's relationship with Kira did not resolve made a lot of sense to me because I thought that was like that makes sense and in, in explaining why this is char- a character with such angst and such uh, uh, fear of getting close to people. But for me, I don't I don't know if I quote unquote want a sequel. You know, I, I might enjoy a sequel, but I don't want to. I wouldn't want to force a sequel. But the thing that I felt like maybe it could use a sequel is Han character arc goes from you know he's a pretty good guy who has had a rough life to really becoming pretty pretty cynical at the end you know not trusting people but he's not quite at the nadir that i think he he needs to be before a new hope and so my thinking for a sequel was more about pushing him a bit further you know, really getting the getting him to the point where he's just a cynical jerk who, um, you know, who just has lost faith in other people, except, you know, aside from Chewie. Uh, so I think there's still a bit. I think there's still some interesting character work that they could do with him. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't financially. I don't think we're going to get a sequel because the box office. I don't think we're going to get a sequel. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing it in the book, though. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we get like the end phase nest comic book as well. That yeah, that's probably already in the works. Yeah. Um, Keep in mind too that that one of the reasons why this film is considered a flop is because it took so much money to make because they kept messing right. it up and then having to fix it. Presumably they're you not. Go gonna tell Bob Iger. You go just file that to Bob Iger. <laughs> Disney shareholders. Yeah, I'll call him up. He's an old golfing buddy. The the you know the other thing is they they actually. Um, kind of to Dave's point about Lando movie, um, they are making a Boba Fett movie. That's been confirmed. So uh, a Lando movie, you said? We, we, we don't know we don't know what that will take place in, but we know that obviously in Jedi, you've got you know, Han going, what? Boba Fett? Boba Fett? And so they clearly have a history that needs to be explored. Um, you know, that would be sort of an ideal place. I mean, I think a Lando movie makes sense. A lot of people liked Donald Glover's, uh, you know, portrayal there. So, um, including myself, um, I, I I would expect that to be the route they go as well, rather than just like a solo part two. Um, yeah, I don't that, know. That makes sense to me. I mean, but just seriously, if that's the cape room on his ship, can you imagine the cape room in his house? I want to see the cape room in his house. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cloud City has, I'm sure, a wing uh, of cape rooms. <laughs> right. A cape mall. Cape it's just like the entire outer, you know, uh, ring of Cloud City is capes. <laughs> I do think one issue is that, you know, we're all Americans here. And even if we haven't been Star Wars fans for 40 years, Han Solo has been part of our cultural legacy, and we, we most, I think, even those of us, you know, we kind of knew who he was, we knew who Harrison Ford was. I think one thing 
And this gets to the box office issue as well and the reviews for Solo. I think one thing that Disney maybe would be smart to realize is that a lot of a lot of people overseas don't really have that attachment to Han Solo. And the Chinese audiences just have no nostalgia for Star Wars. And Star Wars has been bombing and you know, not just Solo, but Last Jedi is basically bombing and it's bombed in China and India, similar. Um, so yeah, it's another issue. And it, that's, you know, it, like, so we care about Han Solo because we have a history with him. But there are a lot of people who could potentially be Star Wars fans today who don't have that history. And so that's one of the reasons why I just would be very wary of a, of a, of a solo sequel and, you know, kind of encourage the franchise to maybe push a bit beyond solo, push a bit beyond these legacy characters and kind of do something for the, you know, do something to kind of do something, maybe continue the story after the sequel, after the uh, sequel trilogy with new characters who, you know, for Chinese fans, you know, so Chinese fans can get on the ground floor of a new story. We could move on to another slide, probably. What was this, slide two? Yeah. All right. We're worse than Corey. Um, Again. Which is pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, some interesting explorations. I think, um, Emily, you had, had pointed out some of the comments that you wanted to make here around um, just sort of the the ideas around what does it mean to be human um, or or like sentient if you know we're including like various alien races and all of that kind of thing here but um, in particular to um, L3's sort of um, uh, uh, you know movement to you know free droids from the oppressive uh, regimes that well are oppressing them. Um, yeah, so I, I'll, I'll throw this out to you maybe, and then we can kind of talk about some of the, the stuff that goes on here. Because it's more than just all three, of course, right? There's slavery, and, and you mentioned human trafficking, and kind of like all of the different varied and nuanced, um, you know, ways in which people are subjugated uh, in this film. Um, yeah, uh, thanks. It. Um... It was one of the things that I remember uh, really vividly from the Star Wars course. Um, um, Dr. Sturgis talking about the way that we sometimes evaluate characters um, in Star Wars films based on how they interact with the droids, whether they are, you know, um, more like Luke, you know, who bothers to kind of meet the droids and introduce himself and things like that, or um, uh, his uncle, um, who is just kind of grunting orders at them, you know, um, and of course uh, the different characters can, um, we could go on and on with character reactions to droid, but we do tend to kind of judge them based on that. Um, and, and their relationships, you know, like we instantly love Poe in, uh, The Force Awakens because of his little reunion with BB-8. I mean, that was just sure. so, I mean, from the beginning, but even when they were reunited, you know, and it's just so sweet, you know, and it's like, I think in The Last Jedi, he actually scratches BB-8, which is so awesome. Um, it's like, really? It's, it's like the, the videos of, like, like dogs dog. when, like, someone comes home from yeah. the army or something, like. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I know. You're like, did you wear a tug? I didn't know. It felt um, like buddy too. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely they're definitely you know the best kind of coworkers. Um, and so um, uh, in the science fiction uh, part one class that we're taking this summer. It was uh, uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, 1920 play uh, by Carol Kopic, I think, um, was uh, uh, Amy kind of threw it, Dr. Sturgis kind of threw that out there um, as just a kind of a footnote in terms of um, what the, the first of all, the place where we get the term robots. Um, it's, it was a play. It was a, a science fiction play. Um, and uh, this is this is where this word robots comes from and it's this play about you know these people who have figured out how to create and in the play you know they're much more like um flesh and blood you know almost like more like clones um than than the robots that we think of today mechanic mechanical robots but um and from the very beginning um the theme is established of the the problematic nature of these created beings um, and what it's lawful to expect from them, what it's lawful to do with them and, and, um, and how that, uh, and, and the fear that they will take over and that they will rebel. So this is all laid out from the very first time we had this concept of the, the idea of a robot, you know, that we can kind of put that together with that term. Um, and so this has always been a theme in, in Star Wars. And I, th I really enjoyed how, I should I should watch my use of the word enjoy because I, I say things like oh human trafficking I really enjoy that theme I'm like I don't enjoy human trafficking but I do um, really appreciate when when stories deal with that um, sure. and so in this movie we see this with L3 you know kind of unwittingly sort of unwittingly um, leading this droid rebellion um, just by kind of removing a restraining bolt and telling him you know telling the the one who's you know, been freed to go free some others. And then all of a sudden she's got this rebellion on her hands. Um, that proves a, a pretty, uh, convenient distraction, um, for the smugglers. Um, so, so it's a really interesting thing. And then this whole thing, and then she ends up giving her life for this or giving her existence for this. And, uh, and then, you know, she becomes part of the millennium, millennium Falcon, which is really, it's just a really interesting, um, way of amping up that theme of what's our relationship with these, these sentient, these animated, um, mm -hmm. created, you know, uh, machines, um, that serve us and live alongside the humans in the story. Um, what is our relationship? What is it meant to be? What could it be? How could it go wrong? Um, and what is it, what does it mean for our notions of what it means to be human and for who counts as a human? Um, who has rights? Who doesn't have rights? What's the difference? You know, mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I thought it was a really interesting aspect of the story that was comedic, obviously, you know, when she's, she's asking, you know, he's just kind of, do you need anything? Equal rights. You know, I love that line. It was very funny, but it, it was also very kind of a little bit of a jab. Um, and, you know, especially when you think back about like the Clone Wars and how concerned in the Clone Wars, the narrative is with this idea of, um, I'm sorry, not the Clone Wars, Attack of the Clones, Clone Wars too, but Attack of the Clones, especially with this the 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 fact that the Jedi Order um, took advantage of this clone army um, is a part of the fabric of their downfall, um, and so and so it's a, it's a really interesting and I think kind of underexplored theme. From what I've seen, it's kind of an underexplored theme in Star Wars. So I I was glad to see this film kind of bring it to the fore. 
sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Bye, Uh, me? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I was gonna say not to derail the the conversation from being about humans and droids, but I think it's impossible to ignore that this droid in particular was also a female. So you've got this feminism plant as well, and of a female being an object, like a robot, um, and and everything that happens with Kira, she's sort of treated as an object as well, um, and so that's sort of a different topic but but I think that that was a very conscious cho choice and I'm with Emily where you know enjoy is the wrong word but I definitely appreciate them expanding this and and exploring these areas in sometimes subtle sometimes not so subtle ways um, I think it's something that Star Wars I think it's I think it's the direction that they're moving um, I was gonna show you guys I don't know if I talked about this book um, on or our discussion on last Jedi but this is um, the legends of uh, Luke Skywalker and there is a, it's just, it's like a collection of people talking about, well, that one time I met Luke, you know, here's what, I, I don't know if this is true, but here's what I've heard of him. And it's a bunch of legends and like the reader, it's, we don't even know which ones are true and which ones aren't. But there's a, uh, a story in here called I Droid, and it is set from the perspective of a droid um, and uh, their dealings with um, uh, droids that they know being reprogrammed. Um, and it's really moving and really, really good. So I do recommend it. And there's the last line of the of the short story is really good too. So um, it explores that. I think it's something that they're kind of, it's a direction they're moving in. And I really appreciate that. And that's a canon book, Kelly? Yeah, this yeah, came out uh, last year, like December, okay, wow. I want to say. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know, thanks. Yeah. The, yeah um, I'm kind of curious about this. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say to the, um, to the to the point about like um reprogramming and stuff like the number of times in star wars films where like wiping a droid's mind is like a threat you know to what especially like a droid who's like acting up or not doing what they're told right like just erase it which you know i mean one of the constant themes that kat and i talk about in um, our podcast is how much memory is what a person is it's you know what you remember i mean there's you know, maybe some basic programming underlying you, but like so much of what people are and and by people, of course, I mean, aliens, um, you know, and everyone else in between, like how much of what you are is what you remember and the experiences that you have. And so just the ease with which that threat can, you know, completely erase, you know, a creature, you know, just because they're robotic or computer or whatever. Um, yeah, is definitely definitely an interesting thing to talk about and if you can i if i can just um tag off of that um if you if you think about our perceptions of c-3po and r2d2 and the different ways we we interface with those characters i mean c-3po is this annoying nagging you know um pessimistic sort of and and r2d2 is full of mystery and clever and a here a little hero droid I mean, C-3PO does heroic things, but you don't think of him as a hero droid, you know, just the way we think of um, BB-8 and and um, and R2-D2, but he's had his mind wiped over and over, um, uh, C-3PO has. I mean, right? He would have he had to, or else he, you know, R2-D2 is the one who's kind of carrying it through. So it's, it's interesting in terms of, like, rights and, like, the way that that affects a character, um, you know, like a droid, that it, it really makes a big difference. And, it, and they have no agency in it whatsoever. 
Yeah, I'm, I've been curious about this theme since I saw the film. And first of all, I, I agree with the consensus. I mean, this is, it's an interesting subplot. It's kind of, it's, it's, it, it fits with Solo because so much of Solo is about characters trying to achieve their freedom in one way or the other, whether, whether it's Solo who just wants a ship and fly, flying around, the, wants to fly around the galaxy. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's, it, it gives the, greater, the movie a bit of, of a greater depth. That said, it's a bit odd to have this in a prequel where we know what happens or doesn't happen to droid rights 10, 40 years later on, you know, in A New Hope. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess like, the, the, the droid rights bit is played for comedy in this movie, but it's kind of a tragedy when you look at it because in A New Hope, well, the droids are still... T- discriminated against in the Moss Eisley Cantina. They can't go in. Um, you know, 3PO and R2 are sold to the Lars family. Um, you know, I guess Luke is technically not a slave owner because he removes the restraining bolt from R2-D2 and C-3PO. So that's kind of a fine distinction. And I don't know, does this does this subplot mean, if it's uh, L3, mean that most of the characters in Star Wars are actually slaveholders, and what does that mean for what we think of when we think of like the rebels being the good guys, or even like Poe? And you know, is is BB-8 a liberated droid who's working for the Resistance willingly, or is he essentially a slave, or is he a pet? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we have to go like too far down that rabbit hole, but at the same time. I kind of feel like I want some resolution to this. I kind of want to see the droid rebellion fulfilled because I kind of feel like that is, that's got to be part of the, you know, whatever happens in episode nine, you know, there's got to be some, some outcome in which the good guys win and freedom is restored. And I kind of feel like droid rights has to be part of that now. Sure. I mean, Jabba also has slaves too, like non-droid slaves. He's, oh yeah, but he's a bad guy. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I, I I'm just saying, like all of these, like there's still across the board whether we're whether we consider droids, you know, and I, I think there's also the added uh, thing. So like when you think about like sentient beings, like you think about like species, like as a whole as being sentient per se, but like, I don't think we can classify droids as a whole as like all having the same level of sentience or maybe we can like, Are we sure about that? Know, it, it, yeah. Like I, I'm just saying, like, I think, I think there are probably certain droids, like the little mouse droid that goes scurrying off. Like it, does that droid have the same rights as like R2D2 and, or should it have the same rights as R2D2 and C3PO if we were to liberate all droids? I don't like, I, I legitimately don't know the answer to that question. I don't know that, you know, versus like uh, uh, any alien that has like a language, like we're all automatically going to consider them pretty high on the sentient scale, right? Like, and so probably as a species, we're going to like say, okay, yeah, just cross the board. They should have some sort of freedom. Um, so I, I, there's, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying like, I feel like, across all of the different nuanced ways between outright slavery, droid rights, you know, human trafficking, um, forced uh, uh, 
entry into the Imperial Academy, like we get, um, you know, with uh, with Finn and and kind of the implications there, like all different levels of that sort of like slavery and and forced service uh, on a lot of different levels. So I'm I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, like that that should be included with that. Um, just kind of noting, I guess, that like all of these other ones are still there too. Well, I'll disagree with you, Dom. Because, um, but like what you said about, you know, in terms of like, does this have to come out because of the events of this story, this film, does this eventually have to kind of come out in the wash at some point in the, I don't think so. Because I mean, if you look at the history of slavery um, globally and, the, and the, the, kind, the slave rebellions that occurred during it from, you know, um, throughout the history of slavery, um, you know that they didn't end one slave rebellion doesn't end the practice um and and frankly you know in a society uh in star wars in in a, a kind of society that can employ crafted machines as a servant class um if they can do that that's not going to go away anytime soon especially because of a you know one planet's uh, unfortunate slave rebellion um, so no, I mean, I can see, but I can see why, you know, rebellions of slave, of, um, droids might affect public opinion about slaves and lead to further, um, segregation, such as like what you see on Tatooine with the, the, the droids not being allowed into the cantina. Um, that could be a holdover from these types of rebellions and the, 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 the mistrust, um, uh, could be, could factor into that. So, so no, I mean, I, but I, I like I like that it's dealing with it. You know, I like that it's dealing with the fact that this is a problem um, and that this isn't just something that we can take for granted and just know, oh, well, in Star Wars, there's there's droids and droids can do all the things that humans don't want to do. Well, there's a cost to that. You know, um, it's a kind of like, you know, it's a kind of magic that has a cost. And and again, not to take us too far afield, but um, I think it is really interesting. I'm always interested in the ways that Star Wars has impacted Harry Potter and also Harry Potter impacting Star Wars moving forward. Um, but I see this, you know, the more I think about this, the more I see uh, house elves as an expression of this, um, this theme in a lot of science fiction of this, these droids, these robots, whatever you want to call them, these created beings that, of course, we, you know, in the real world dream about having these created servants, you know, that, that we can use to our ends with no conscience, you know, issues, you know, we can just exploit them at our will. Um, but that there is a cost to that. And you, you definitely see that with the house elves that make everything at Hogwarts and in the wizarding world for, for the rich people anyway, go. But then, you know, you do have um, the ethical cost of that situation. So I might write a paper about it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess, I mean, yeah. So point taken about the fact that history doesn't always have a happy ending. Although we did have the Civil War, which didn't resolve the problems, but it certainly made leaps and bounds. Um, addressing some of those issues sure. uh, but I guess the story though you know Star Wars has usually been a story about good guys and bad guys and I think we're supposed to be rooting for the rebellion and Han and Luke and and Ray and Poe and Finn in the movies and I guess I, I guess my point is more about like if the if the droids rights subplot is not resolved somehow like if in episode at the end of episode nine we're still viewing R2 and C3PO and BB-8 as slaves. 
Like, how does that complicate how we view the heroes, or does it? Well, I don't think we necessarily are being invited to, to view them all as slaves. I definitely don't think that's the mm -hmm. case. I mean, and it, I don't think Star Wars has ever invited us to view them that way, because we see different characters treating them differently. And, and we're invited to judge characters based on how they treat the droids. Like, you know, when the um, R2-D2 and C-3PO, is it in the, the Jawa um, sand crawler that they first encounter the, the, the um, mistreatment of, of other droids? Um, so that's supposed to be horrific to us because we see that these two droids are, you know, kind of likable characters. And so, so I, I don't think it's just as simple as, well, this, this film has determined that droids are slaves and we should be rebelling against this or we should, you know, care. if you're a good character, you have to be, you know, for droid liberation. I think, I think in, there's a lot of nuance to it that's actually very interesting. Just like there's nuance with the house elves in Harry Potter where, you know, I mean, there's a certain way in which Hermione looks very foolish with what she's trying to do um, to liberate the house elves. And so um, in the end, she kind of comes down on the side of right. Other people kind of side with her. But at the same time, um, you can't ask them. You can't ask these droids to give their lives. You can't ask these house elves to give their lives unwillingly. You know, you can't you can't expect them to do that. But you, but they must be allowed to fight if they want to. You know, so there is the, the kind of idea of freedom that comes in and you can't imagine somebody like BB-8 not wanting to fight for the rebellion. Um, and the same with R2-D2 and even C-3PO and, you know, somebody like Chopper, you know, from Rebels is extremely down, down with the cause, you know, and uh, you get the impression that Chopper is not, is only doing Chopper's will, you know, maybe Hera's also, but, but mostly just Chopper's will. So, um, so no, I think there's a lot of nuance to it that I hope never gets resolved in Star Wars because it's interesting. Yeah, and, and just to throw another example out there of sort of an independent droid, but not one that we might be fond of, would be IG-88, who's the assassin droid that pops up in some of the other, you know, stuff there, who's, you know, has no master, he makes contracts on his own, like he's out there, you know, doing doing the good assassin work that he does, and all of that kind of thing, too. So I, I definitely think there, I, like, I agree with Emily there, that there's there's nuance and a lot of it is in how others treat the droids that, you know, are around them. And I mean, I guess like coming back to solo, you know, there's uh, with L3, there's also like that implications of given the sort of the um, pansexuality of Lando, um, you know, the implications too of like him saying to her, like, do it because I'm your captain. And so like, there's some very interesting overtones there when you start thinking about like, what, what level and type of relationship do they actually have? And, and is she his servant or underling or whatever? And, you know, how much do we go down that road of reading into those types of things too? Even if she's relatively freer than most droids, like there's still a, a, hierarchy in that still situation. A power dynamic there. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, if this were, yeah, if this were real life, I think, you know, we would be, you know, Lando would be named and shamed um, for those comments. Yeah. All right. I mean, we're kind of creeping up here um, in the last 10 minutes. And <laughs> surprisingly, we didn't, we didn't even make as many slides as we have in some of our past discussions. 
Um, any other characters that we haven't talked about? We don't have to limit it to this uh, list here. Um, this was just a promotional one that I saw and then decided to mark up a little bit. Um, anyone, uh, anyone else we want to talk about? Like, you know, some of Beckett's crew who dies um, and are just kind of like cast into the abyss and never seen or talked about or heard from again. Um, Curious. Yeah, I I liked I liked Val and Rio for what they were. They went pretty quickly. Although I was a bit surprised that um, Val's death didn't seem to have a larger impact, especially when we get the Enfys Nest reveal at the end. I was expecting yeah. the fact that Val and Rio both died because of Enfys Nest and her Marauders to come back up, and it, I don't. It, didn't and Beckett doesn't want to go along with Memphis Ness's plans, but mm -hmm. An seems pretty willing to. And you know, it's like, what do you feel? Did, did those deaths not impact you? I, I, I kind of thought that was a bit odd. I don't know if that was just. I, I'm yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure how to interpret that. Yeah, I thought that was a little inelegant storytelling. Um, that I mean, it's pretty typical that we have a bad group, bad person, and it turns out that they had good motivations with their good people, but to have such, yeah, such impactful deaths that actually didn't have anything to do with how the characters reacted almost at all in the rest of the movie, um, pretty much, I mean, maybe it's a character thing, but that's a little bit of a stretch. You can say Beckett, that's his way of life, and it's move on, go, um, but I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I, I, I agree. I thought that was a little bit of sloppy storytelling. Sorry, I'm I'm reading a comment, not laughing at what you said, Kelly. Um, yeah, Mike Mike says preachy is for Star Trek. That we should leave that sort of stuff out of Star Wars. I don't know what that's referring to specifically, but that made me laugh. Um, yeah. Uh, So, so I know we brought up Maul earlier. Obviously, he's not in here because that would have been a bit spoilery. Um, I'm not someone who particularly likes that they brought back Maul way before Solo in, in Clone Wars and then Rebels. Um, I thought he should have been left cut in half uh, where he lied. Um, given that he was brought back, though, like, so, Dave, I think, you did, you did you know that like he was back in the Star Wars universe at all? Because I know no. you haven't seen like those shows. So like from mm -hmm. a perspective of someone who doesn't who who maybe is a little surprised, what were your thoughts? Yeah, there? yeah, no, I was gonna jump in for exactly that reason. Um, yeah, I I have not watched any of the of those shows, so I was not aware that Darth Maul, you know, was not dead. Um, so it did come as a shock to see him at the end, and I could tell you it was. It was confusing for me in the sense that I it I suddenly had a bit of an existential crisis over like the timeline of the, where this movie fit, and uh, I think uh, anybody who is which I think is a vast majority of people who primarily watched the movies um, are going to have that reaction. Uh, you know, how did this guy around? Like I thought that 
you know, it's not going to fit right. And then I'm doing the, the mental math. I'm like, all right, Ken, how does this work? Will it fit in or whatever? And it was very jarring. Um, as a, just as a, as a general note about the character, like I liked that he was there um, in the sense that I liked the character. I'd like to see more of him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like it, it, it felt very off and confusing and jarring, not, knowing that backstory and now that i know that backstory i think it's kind of goofy uh to be honest uh i think it would make more sense just to say he's another dude who looks like darth maul you know darth maul's brother some stuff you know rather than saying hey we stitched this guy back together and it's the same dude like that seems that seems goofy to me which he he did have a brother who died and stayed dead so so. (laughs) or what we know well as as far as we know (laughs) Sorry, Kelly. I was just going to say, like, I, I am in the same camp as, as Dave. I don't watch anything. I, I had to turn to my brother and be like, like, because I've only seen the prequels, like, twice. So I barely, like, I am not a fan of them. But, um, sorry, Emily. Um, but uh, but I, I had to turn to my brother and just be like, I, did he die? Am I, so, like, but also how many times have we seen the big bad guy in the hologram and then have to, un- like, I, cause, like, come on do something else with a big review. Like, I just kind of feel like that has been done so many times with Star Wars and I'm kind of done with it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, I didn't like the fact that they had to connect the Crimson Crimson Dawn or whatever the, the crime syndicate was to the, you know, to the Empire in any way. Like, I thought I would have preferred it to have just been, you know, like any other crime syndicate, just some random crime syndicate mm-hmm. that controlled a lot of things and was bad. Like, I don't see why you had to connect it to the Sith in any way so so the thing is though that if i'm remembering my clone wars right because this is before rebels he's not connected to the empire at this point though right so like that's i feel like another point of confusion which it seems like you both (laughs) assumed that he was and and he's not at this point in the timeline unless i'm mistaken and, and misremembering no no you're right at this point in the timeline he is a crime boss and that's right. been, that's his new occupation. Um, yeah, I, I, I like as somebody who's who, who watched the Clone Wars, um, it was fun seeing the cameo. Um, but I also have enough awareness to realize that like it probably that probably wasn't the way to do it. Um, it probably you probably needed more of a lead-in to inter- reintroduce Maul to new viewers. If you if you if that if he was important enough to be in the movie. He was important enough yeah. to give some explanation for those ninety percent of viewers who haven't seen the Clone Wars. You can't bring a from the perspective of the uh, typical moviegoer. They brought him back to life inexplicably, without explaining it in any way. That makes no sense at all to do uh, yeah. from a story standpoint. It's it was just a bad move. I think uh, they could have done it successfully. Unfortunately, they chose to do it in a stupid way. I, I don't think it would have been really bad to see him right. without, like, in person, right? I mean, that would have been, like, really cool in-person reveal, like, not a hologram, like, him being super badass. Like, I could see that being a little bit more effective. I, I can't imagine we're not going to see that, Kelly. Yeah, this seemed like a big tease, again, kind of like Luke at the end of Force Awakens. You know, it's just, like, a kind of a tease to get you to kind of tune in to, to the next episode. Um and I have to say, I mean, I can't disagree with you guys. That is exactly how I would have 
how I would have received this um, because that's how I did receive it in the Clone Wars when I first saw it and I, and I was, you know, I'm such a diehard Obi-Wan, you know, disciple that I was like, this is an affront to Obi-Wan's achievement, you know, and, and it was, it was, but it took me a long time. And then I think it was his appearance in Rebels that kind of got me, first of all, I was used to the fact that he was still around and then they did give us this wonderful resolution and they put it back in Obi-Wan's hands um, in terms of, of, you know, finishing that character off. Sorry, spoiler. Anyway, go watch it. It's really great. I didn't spoil anything. Obi-Wan kills him again. There you go. Yes. Well, yes. How can this appearance be a tease, though, if we already know what happens to Maul? That's the thing. Well, it's like, no, I mean, it's, it's a tease. Like, so so um, my, my larger point was the one thing I am annoyed with with these new movies, everything that's happened since Disney took over and that we've had all these new movies, and probably new books, too, is um, I'm annoyed at the fixing of the prequels. And because I, you know, I am a big fan of the prequels and I, and I feel like a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of things that people criticize Star Wars for, if you took the prequels seriously and, and, and no offense to anyone who doesn't like them, if you don't like them, you don't like them. But in terms of taking the storytelling seriously, I feel like it, it explains a lot and it, it helps to, it's it is a really cohesive story um and and it's especially in terms of those first six films um and so so it really annoys me like you know the thing with um making ray and nobody you know it's almost like they're trying to fix the whole midichlorians thing and i don't mind that she's a nobody it's fine and i don't mind that anybody can access the force and maybe that is how the force works but um at the same time i didn't mind the midichlorians like the midichlorians made sense to me in terms of you know, being not everybody, what makes you special isn't all about you, you know? So, so with this um, thing with Maul, introducing him as this little tease, like, oh, we, we might bring him back so that you see him do his little martial arts, you know, acrobatics thing while he fights, you know, later in another film. That's kind of like, I would love to see that, yes, but you don't need to fix the prequels for me. The fact that you killed him off in the first prequel, you, that's not something you need to fix for me right here, Um so I don't know. I'll again. I'll still buy my ticket if if he's gonna be in another movie. I'll still buy my ticket. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the bringing back of Maul, whatever his character might have been in, in Phantom Menace. I mean, it's also sort of the Joss Whedon move to have like this really cool bad guy that you kill off right away, right? So like. I, I'm okay with that sort of in principle, but um, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, we left this for the last minute of our discussion. Um, there's a lot of references in here, and I feel like we've talked through some of them. Um, we're obviously not going to go through here, but like speaking of Whedon, anyone who's seen Firefly has to have like realized or seen a lot of the direct connections here. I mean, the tr like there's a 25 minute episode of solo. That's basically the train job plot. Um, you know, and that's fine. Like it is what it is. I think that goes back to what I was saying before about how I feel like this could have been like three or four TV episodes sort of strung together. Um, I don't know. Maybe like, we don't really have time to talk through all these. We can go a few minutes over here and maybe just everyone sort of pick like the one reference from like an earlier thing, whether it was, 
an EU or legend story. Um, it doesn't have to have been from Firefly if maybe there was something else that you picked up on um, just to kind of round out and end what was maybe your favorite uh, reference that you caught or, or thing that they brought in from legends or anything along those lines. We'll, we'll go in the same order we introduced ourselves. Oh, I not having not read a lot of the or EU and stuff like that. I, I know none of these. I'm not going to lie. Um, but one thing that I thought was cool that I pointed out um, to my friend was um, I like I like seeing Sabak, the card game. And I, mm -hmm. I like, I love uh, Londo and, and, and Han. And I like the interplay between the two when Han says Sabak with a, a that, is it long A, right? And, uh, and, and, I don't know if it's the reason why Lando says Han instead of Han, but he kind of responds with a like Han, and Han goes, you know, it's, it's Han, you know. But it's it like that, that little like that little moment. I actually, of all the checklists that they did, like I kind of like that one the most. Of why Lando is, is like calls him Han, you know. I thought that was really cute. Um, that's the only one that I can kind of speak to out of all of these. I really like I really liked that as well. Um, I really liked the fact that you know in um, Empire Strikes Back when um, they first you first meet Lando and Lando gives him this whole oh you're I'm gonna you dirty rotten scoundrel and then he gives him this big hug mm -hmm. like I was always like that's just playing manipulative to the audience like that that's just like building up suspense that isn't there you know but now this movie has helped that moment just make more sense of like that that's how that, that's the kind of relationship they have I, I loved how angry Lando was at the way Han treated his ship and the way that the <laughs> ship just looked gorgeous before the Kessel run and then it just looked like a piece of crap afterwards and you know all that all that really yeah. fit together and connected and you know you came in that you're braver than I thought you know I mean that just all makes so much so much more sense now and I really enjoy that well, with Firefly, the old joke used to be that this was the Han Solo, that Firefly and Malcolm Reynolds were supposed to be the Han Solo origin story that uh, Lucasfilm wasn't going to make. So um, I kind of like the way that Solo parallels Firefly. Um, and I, I, particularly, I particularly like the, um, uh, in, in war stories, on, um, uh, crime boss Niska is torturing Malcolm Reynolds. He's talking about this philosopher, Chinese philosopher who believes that uh, one's character only comes about after they're tortured. You know, you, know you, you display your true colors under extreme adversity. And that's kind of something that Solo, I don't think necessarily intentionally, but you know, definitely echoes um, in that we, we see who Han really is after he goes through adversity. We see who Kira really is. We see who Beckett really is. We see who Chewie really is. You know, when, they, when, when uh, their backs are against the wall, Yeah, I would definitely agree with with Kelly and Emily that I I really like how they uh, develop Lando and and Han's uh, relationship, particularly with the ship and how they you know go back and forth about who owns the ship and under what conditions and all of this. Uh, that's definitely my my favorite part. Uh, but since it's already been said, I'm gonna throw in the totally random Cthulhu monster. As a Lovecraft fan, I appreciated that, even though I think it made zero sense to have it there and how it lives and what it feeds out. A million questions, it makes no sense at all. Um, but being a Lovecraft fan, I got to give a shout out to the Cthulhu monster. 
But again, if you watch Rebels, you know that space squids are canon. So. You keep saying that. I, I'm I'm never gonna watch that just on principle because because you keep saying I should. It's actually you're a really good space for a minute. You should. You're, you're depriving you yourself. I think, I think you're, you're underestimating my my obstinance. I think you're gonna be writing down the myth. You're gonna be writing down the myth moot with me. We'll get in a good chunk of it. Fair enough. Um, you're in for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like I would I would be lying if I didn't say anything other than drawing the Firefly connections. I mean, Dom kind of made the main ones that I would have made as well. Um, I think I would have liked to have seen Dryden Voss be more Niska-esque. I think we get the hint that he could have been, but like um, like there's that scene in The Train Job where you've got like Niska like cleaning off his knife and there's the guy hanging up in the other room as the door like slowly closes and the whole conversation about, you know, rumor and reputation versus fact and, you know, knowing who I am. Like, I feel like Dryden Voss could have been that Niska-esque character that instills fear and he never quite got there um, for me personally. Um, so I would have liked to have seen more of that. That's not really like something they brought in, but something I would think that could have been brought in that was a little more, uh, would, it, would I think have, uh, help the story a little bit. But. Great. Well, thank you all for the discussion. Thank you for all those who joined and, and made comments and uh, asked questions. And um, again, we'll be coming back with Edward Scissorhands in the beginning of August. So uh, if you're not already signed up for the um, go to webinar link, go ahead and go to mythgard.org slash movie club, uh, movie hyphen club. And, we, uh, and, and you can sign up there and we'll see you back in August. Thank you. Bye. Right.